as the pulpit committee was beginning to think about who to bring for the last three Sundays before our new senior pastor came to be here, um, this next speaker was one that jumped to some of our minds. It's been fun to watch Erin. Uh, she's no stranger to any of us. Many of us had, I was thinking back, Erin, um, of the times that uh, uh, in junior high Sunday school class and some of those <laughs> other times. Boy, do I have stories I could tell. <laughs> but Erin um, truly is a great individual and has a passion to see uh, the Word of God just transform lives. Erin grew up at First Church as a daughter of Pastor Bob and Renee Moss. While on a summer mission trip with the youth in high school, she answered the call to ministry at age 15. In 2002, she represented her home state as Miss Michigan and competed for the title of Miss America 2003. During that time, she traveled throughout the country speaking at schools, community events, and in many churches. Erin graduated summa cum laude from Anderson University and holds a bachelor's degree in Bible and religion. While attending AU, she met her husband, Dan, in biblical Greek class. I guess that's what it means. It's Greek to us, huh? <laughs> they were married in August 2003. Dan is a sales uh, counselor with C.P. Morgan, an Indianapolis home builder. Currently, Erin is on staff at the Church of Crossing in Indianapolis, Indiana, as an adult ministries director. Her responsibilities include small groups, women's ministry, Crown Financial Ministries, and occasional preaching. Before joining the staff at the Church of the Crossing, Erin served as coordinator for the women in the ministry of the Church of God at the national offices. She also completed internships at North Anderson Church of God in Anderson, Indiana, and Enjoy Ministries, Atlanta, Georgia. Erin and Dan currently reside in Pendleton, Indiana, with their dog, Scarlett. Would you please help me welcome in a very warm way, Mrs. Erin Taylor. Well, good morning, First Church. I can't tell you how excited I am to be with you this morning. My heart is just overflowing with joy as I'm in a place that has been so significant in my life and in my family's life, and I see so many faces who are so special to me. I bring you warm greetings and love from my entire family and especially my parents. Uh, they are doing very well, and I have to say, I know it's been hard for First Church to lose them, but they live 15 minutes from my house now, and I love it! That has been a great blessing. My dad just returned late last night from an airplane uh, ride where he returned from Portland, Oregon, meeting his new grandson. This is Samuel Robert Moss. That's my older brother, Brandon. And we are really excited about him, almost two months old now. First Church is a place that has impacted my life in ways that are not describable. And I'm so thankful for this place. And I and my family, we want you to know that we are so excited about your new pastor who will be here in just two weeks. We have been praying with you and we believe the Lord has led you uh, right to the right person. And so we know that his family, the Colt family, will be incredibly blessed in the way that we were. So we just want to say as a family, keep that up, First Church. You do a good job of that. Well, it was about two weeks ago when Dan and I were headed downtown Indianapolis for an Indians baseball game. 
Now, we were running a little late, so we were trying to make good time, if you know what I mean. And as we were hurrying down the highway, we turned onto Interstate 70, which takes you right into downtown. But unfortunately, there's some construction. In fact, they're calling it the Super 70 Project. Dan says anytime they call it super, that means super slow. And it was. We were down to two lanes, and we were in the left lane trying to move along as quickly as we could, but we came up upon a car in the left lane that was going quite slow. And then we became more and more annoyed because it just so happened that this car in front of us was going exactly the same pace as the car next to it. So both lanes, the same pace. Have you been in that situation? Isn't that frustrating when you want to pass the car? Well, this happened for about five minutes and our blood pressure's rising and we're getting a little bit agitated. And finally, the car moves out of the way. But then we noticed that all the cars around us, there was about 15 of us moving down in the highway in just this big blob of 15 cars and no one was passing anyone. In fact, we decided we better not pass either because leading the pack in this blob was one of those special cars, you know, with the lettering on the side and the lights and the sirens and the ability to write those special expensive tickets. Well, whenever we're going slow on the highway, for whatever reason, when we're stuck behind a slow driver, it's really frustrating, isn't it? I once heard about an officer who was sitting on the side of the interstate and he was clocking drivers ready to catch a speeder when all of a sudden he noticed a car that was puttering along at 22 miles per hour. So he pulled the car over, and as he walked up to the car, he noticed that there were five older ladies sitting in the car, and all the ladies in the back seat had big eyes and were as white as ghosts. They seemed very upset. He began talking to the driver and explained to her, ma'am, you really are a traffic hazard. You're going much too slow. And she said, excuse me, I am going exactly the speed limit. I saw it, 22 miles per hour. He tried to hide his chuckle and said, ma'am, that's actually State Road 22 that you're on. That's not the speed limit. So she looked a little embarrassed and got ready to go. But before she left, he said, but ma'am, I just have to ask, these other women in the car look very shaken. Are they okay? And she said, well, they'll be okay in a minute. We just got off State Road 119. <laughs> Slow drivers, for whatever the reason, can be very frustrating. And we all know that feeling. And I believe we have that feeling because we live in a world that moves fast and we value speed. Whether it's the drive-through we're going through and we want to get through fast, pay our money, get our food as quickly as we can, or we want a fast internet connection, or a fast airline flight across the country, or a fast recipe where we can get food on the table in less than 30 minutes. Whatever it is, time-saving devices in our world are of utmost value. Are you familiar with the iPhone, the new gadget that's come out? It's an incredible device that fits in the palm of your hand. It's beautifully des designed and it's fun to use, but most importantly, it can save you a ton of time because it's eight devices, at least, combined into one. It's a phone, 
an address book, a camera, a calendar, your email, an iPod, a portable movie player, and a mapping device. And it's fully, fully multitasking, so it can do many of these things at the same time. My friend Lisa said, when they add a function where it can wash my dishes, I'll buy one. It's opening weekend, which was just a few weeks ago when they went on sale, they sold over 500,000 models. We value things like this that can save us time. In this world, we value speed. We want to accomplish as much as we can in the smallest amount of time possible. Now, how do we know this is true? Because we celebrate things like this. We celebrate this is the hottest new item, and it can save us time. We also know that we're addicted to speed because of what we value and what we crave. Because this is what we crave, isn't it? Nice day in a hammock watching the sunset. We crave the opportunity to slow down because our lives move so fast. Well, why is this? Why the need for speed in our lives? Well, at some level, it can be fun, right? A fast roller co coaster or a convertible going down the highway, or perhaps the variety. It can be fun when life is fast-paced and things are changing and we're experiencing new things all the time. But perhaps most of all, we have this drive for speed because we have a drive to accomplish in our lives, where value means we're being productive. So speed is not just a choice, it's a necessity because life is so busy. We have to figure out how to be fast and be productive. But sometimes, sometimes we want to move fast simply because our present reality is uncomfortable. And we want to get on the other side of it as quickly as possible. For example, if you're headed to the doctor or the dentist, don't you hope that that will be over soon? That that will be a fast experience? First when you're in the waiting room, but then when you're in that dentist's office or that doctor's office, or for me, if I'm going to get my blood drawn, for example, I'm hoping that will be over with as quickly as possible. It's an uncomfortable present reality, and I want, it, I want to be on the other side as quickly as I can. This desire that's ingrained in us to move quickly also impacts how we approach our circumstances in life. And when circumstances in life begin to spin out of control, we have the desire to move through that as quickly as possible. Whether it's a relationship that's on the rocks, or a medical diagnosis that you weren't expecting, or an unstable career, or a pregnancy that you did not plan, or problems with your children, or with your spouse. You see, we live in a world that moves so fast that whenever circumstances spin out of control, it's ingrained in us to move fast and to do anything we can to be on the other side of that circumstance. It's our habit and it's what we do to survive. So what we've learned is that fast is the answer to difficult circumstances. Fast is the answer to difficult circumstances. Because if these circumstances, if these challenges don't change, I just don't know if I can get through it. So we move fast. 
We move fast to decisions if we can, or at least to planning what we're going to do about it. We move fast to worry or to fear or to anger or to emotion, but we move quick. Well, today we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament about a king who was faced with a very difficult circumstance, and we're going to find out what he did. His name is King Jehoshaphat. Now, I first learned about King Jehoshaphat when I was in fifth grade, right here at First Church. And the children's choir did a musical called Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat. Some of you probably remember that. And I still remember the theme song. So does my sister who was in there. In fact, we were standing in her kitchen last night singing it to one another. But don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you today. But I want you to know the lyrics. They say, He's fat, fat Jehoshaphat. What a good, good king is he. He's a good, good king who's everything a good, good king should be. Everybody loves him. He's the one we all adore because fat, fat Jehoshaphat loves the Lord. I've always remembered that little song, and I've always remembered his story because of it. Now, there's nothing in the scripture that tells us that Jehoshaphat was fat. <laughs> but the scripture is very clear that Jehoshaphat was a very good king. There are many stories in the Old Testament about bad kings and kings who messed up. But Jehoshaphat comes to us as a shining example of a good king. He was king of Judah. This is the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel divided into two regions after the death of Solomon. He was the fourth king, Jehoshaphat was, of Judah. He took the throne at age 35 and reigned for 25 years. There's many things that we know about Jehoshaphat. Here's a few of them. Number one is that he followed God. Jehoshaphat was a man who loved the Lord and who wanted to follow the Lord's commands. So because of this, second, he worked to abolish idolatry among the kingdom. Third, he reformed the local justice system, establishing councils and uh, judges around. He was very wise in how he governed the people. Fourth, he made smart decisions in trade and commerce. He was a quick thinker, and he had a, a good idea of which way to lead. Fifth, he was well-loved by the people. But perhaps most importantly, Jehoshaphat was a man of character. Second Chronicles 22.9 describes him this way. Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. What a great legacy. Jehoshaphat was a very good man. That doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes, and we can read about some of the mistakes that he made, but through it all, he did seek after the Lord. We're going to read about part of his life today, and our text comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and we're going to start reading at verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of the Munites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. You see, Israel and Judah had recently come together to make war on the Moabites. And now the Moabites were ready for a counterattack. So they were coming back towards Jehoshaphat and his people, but they weren't coming alone. They brought the Ammonites and the Munites with them. Verse 2. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It's already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. 
See, to the east of Jehoshaphat and his people was the Dead Sea. And on the other side of the Dead Sea is where these three nations were coming together to attack Judah. They've been spotted, and Jehoshaphat knows they're on their way. Now, if you'd like to think about this as sort of a rough equivalent, and if you'd like to think about the area of the country we live in, you can kind of picture what's going on here, okay? Imagine, if you will, that there's three cities near Grand Rapids that are coming together, and they're going to attack Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is on the north side of Chicago. And they're going to come around the south side of the lake and come up through Chicago, and they've been spotted, and they've already made it to Gary, Indiana. This is roughly what's going on here. Now, this is the definition of a difficult circumstance. This is the definition of a difficult circumstance. Can you imagine the panic and fear that Jehoshaphat and his people must have been feeling in these moments? Some of you can. Some of you can imagine the panic and the fear because some of you have been in a moment like this. Some of you have been in a moment where you received news that you didn't expect to receive, where something was coming, an attack was on its way, and you were not prepared. And some of you can say, it may not have been just like Jehoshaphat, but I know what those emotions feel like. I know what it feels like when my circumstances spin out of control in big ways or in small ways. And fast is the answer to difficult circumstances. Fast, to move fast, to panic, to fear, to preparation. Can you imagine Jehoshaphat to fast thinking? Remember, he was a wise leader. He could think quick. And that, that inclination to rely on those skills that he has to figure out what he's supposed to do, but whatever it is, to move fast. And Jehoshaphat is alarmed. He's very alarmed. And he does move fast, but not in the way we might think. Verse 3, alarmed, or some uh, translations say frightened, shaken, afraid. Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. See, what we see here is that Jehoshaphat is living by a different set of rules. A fast is a form of intentionally focusing on the Lord. To fast means that we voluntarily abstain from food for spiritual purposes. We put aside a meal or two or three or for several days for spiritual purpose, purposes. Now, slim fast does not count in this setting. It's not about exchanging calories. This is about exchanging our focus. It's a personal discipline so we can focus on the Lord. So instead of sitting down to eat my lunch, I would take that time where I'd normally be sitting and eating, and I would go to a quiet place, and I would pray, and I would focus on the Lord. Now we can fast from all kinds of things. We can fast from food, from television, from sports, romance novels, hobbies, shopping, naps. We can fast from all kinds of things. The important thing is that we're intentionally creating space in our lives that is reserved for God. Isn't it interesting how a word can have multiple meanings, even opposite meanings, like the word fast, right? Fast or fast. Totally different meanings. 
Well, if you trace fast back to its old English roots, we find that the word fast, by definition, means firmly fixed or steadfast. Now, this makes sense when we think about a word like fasten. If I'm fastening something to my wall, it needs to be firmly fixed, steadfast. Now, the adverb fast, meaning speed, developed from a sense of firmly, strongly, vigorously. So, for example, if someone were to say that you are running hard, you are running vigorously, that could mean you are running fast. In the same way, the verb to fast means to hold firmly, steadfast, unmoving before the Lord. Fast is actually more of a measure of intensity than it is speed. Think about the word fast as a measure of intensity. It's true in the case of Jehoshaphat. Fast means intense, but it does not mean speed. In fact, it means slow. It even means stop. Jehoshaphat redefines for us our response to difficult circumstances. Because by nature, we, we say that fast is the answer to difficult circumstances. This is our nature. This is what is ingrained in us. And I believe it was the same thing that was ingrained in Jehoshaphat. But by discipline and by choice, he redefines it. So instead of fast, fast is the answer to difficult circumstances. And he shows us to do the opposite of what comes natural. What we see is that God gives us a different rule book for life. Things work differently in God's kingdom. And what makes sense to us and what comes natural can sometimes be thrown out the window by God because he has something better in mind for us. He teaches us to do the opposite of what comes natural. There's so many examples in scripture about this. Let's look at just a few of them. Luke chapter 9, verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Matthew 20, 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Matthew 20, 26. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Or Matthew 5, 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, all over Scripture, we see God teaching us to do things that are opposite of what feels natural to us. And it's the same way in the story of Jehoshaphat. But we know, as Scripture tells us, that these are not rules without reason. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so Jehoshaphat does the opposite of what comes natural. We know what would come natural, right? We know the troops are on the way. We are going to be under attack. So what would be natural? To draw up the battle plans, to send the message to the troops, hit the gym, eat your protein, we're going to war. 
But instead, he does the opposite. And he calls a fast, which means they're not eating. So if anything, his troops are becoming weaker and weaker because there's no nutrition going into their bodies. See, here's what happens, though. When we follow God's rule book, we remember who God is. And then we gain the perspective that we need for our circumstance. Because what happens is that when fast is the answer, our eyes are on our circumstance. But when fast is the answer, our eyes are on the Lord. And that changes everything. Now this is a huge challenge. This is a very difficult thing for us to do. Because the truth is, when we are faced with difficult circumstances, most of us are probably pretty good about praying, right? But the problem is, is we turn our mouths to the Lord, and we keep our eyes on our circumstance. But what's so amazing, what's so brilliant about what Jehoshaphat does is that he turns his entire attention to the Lord. And in this difficult circumstance, Jehoshaphat offers a beautiful prayer. We're going to keep reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and this is picking up at verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. Power and might are in your hands, and no one can withstand you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham and your friend? They have lived in it and have built a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possessions you gave us as an inheritance? Oh, our God, will you not judge them? Now listen to this. For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah and their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. This is a wonderful prayer, a model prayer for us for difficult circumstance. And Jehoshaphat shows us exactly how we can respond. There's four things that happen in Jehoshaphat's model prayer for difficult circumstances. First, he remembers who God is. He remembers who God is. He says, Oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who's in heaven? You rule over all kingdoms and nations. Power and might are in your hands and no one can withstand you. Isn't that a powerful thing? Sometimes we need to begin our prayers by reminding ourselves who God is. And that even though we are overwhelmed and surprised by our circumstances, God is not. And he can handle it. And all might and all power are in his hands. So that's where he starts, by remembering who God is. Second, he gets historical with God. 
not hysterical. Sometimes we get hysterical in our prayers, right? But this is historical. And he remembers what God has done. And he remembers the promises that God has made. And then he asks for help. Oh, Lord, we need your help. Here's what's going on. I don't understand this circumstance. And we need you, Lord. And finally, he places his trust in God. And that's where these powerful words come from. For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. And I love this. I love this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And then all of Judah and their wives and their little ones and their children stood before the Lord. And this prayer, this beautiful prayer in the midst of difficult circumstances happened through fasting. You see, we're so accustomed to moving so fast in our lives that it's an incredibly valuable thing for us to discipline our souls, to be quiet, and to sacrifice. To sacrifice a meal, to sacrifice television, to sacrifice whatever it is. Because we sacrifice for those things which we value and those things that we prioritize. And when we fast, we fix our eyes on the Lord. Not our problem, not distractions. Isn't it true that when we're going through something difficult, we want a distraction, right? We want a day where we just don't have to think about it. Well, instead of distracting yourself with television or whatever else is, why not distract yourself by just focusing on the Lord? Your eyes on the Lord. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Have you ever said this to the Lord? Has your soul ever cried out in this way? You see, our eyes dictate the direction in which we move, right? Our eyes dictate the direction in which we move. That's why we tell students in driver's ed to keep your eye on the road, right? Because we know that the car direction will begin to follow the direction of someone's eyes. In the same way, it's very difficult, even dangerous, to fix your eyes in one direction and walk in another direction. Our eyes dictate the direction in which we move. And when our eyes are on our circumstance, our circumstance dictates what we're going to do. But when our eyes are on the Lord, the Lord can dictate what we do. not the answer to difficult circumstances. That may be what comes natural, but what God teaches us is that fast is the answer to difficult circumstances. What are the difficult circumstances in your life today? Every one of us has them. They may be small or they may be huge, but we all have difficult circumstances. Where do you need to stand before the Lord? Where do you need to fast? I want to challenge you today to carve out some time in your life. Maybe even today. Maybe today it's a, be it's a beautiful day. It's all rainy and a nap might feel really good. But maybe you need to fast from a nap and spend some time and fix your eyes upon the Lord. And be encouraged today because he is trustworthy. As the old saying goes, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future.
And it's the same way for the people in our story that we were reading about. Because after Jehoshaphat and the people pray and fast, God speaks through a man named Jehaziel. And we're going to read what he says, and this is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Listen to this. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Isn't that a great word? Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And it's an amazing story, and it goes on, and God keeps speaking, and the people keep listening, and they obey, and they worship, and miracles happen. And I, I really hope that you'll read more of Second Chronicles chapter 20 this week. It's a, it's a powerful story, and we just don't have time to unpack it all. But you know the thing that I love about this story, the thing that I love about this book, is that this is not just a story that lies dead in history. This is a book that is a living word. And this is a living, live story for us today. And in the same way that they were not to be afraid or discouraged because the battle is the Lord's, that is the same living word that the Lord has for you today. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged because the battle is not yours, it is the Lord's. And so be encouraged today because there is hope for whatever you might be facing. Just fix your eyes on the Lord. And remember, it's not your battle, but the Lord's. The answer is not fast. The answer is fast. I'd like to close with a word of encouragement. Straight to your soul, offered by the Lord. This is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement. And we pray that it would stick to our souls today. That we would fix our eyes on you, regardless of the difficult circumstances we might be facing. We thank you, God, that you are faithful and that you are good. Amen.